When was the last time you enjoyed a moment of perfect peace? Think about it. The last time you enjoyed a moment of perfect peace. We had one this morning. We had breakfast on the front porch. Our kids are kind of down to two. So Gabriel has gone home to Montreal, and Jordan and Sarah are serving up north. So we're kind of experiencing what it's like to have a normal Canadian family with just two kids. And it's really easy, much easier than five. And so um, we had a bit of a quiet house this morning. We made breakfast and sat out front. It was a moment of perfect peace. As I'm mentioning these examples from my life, of course, the point is not for you to think about my life, but for you to use these examples as avenues to be thinking about your life. Right? Why do I talk about me? Well, that's my experience. Nobody wants to know about your bunions. Right? It's okay for them to know about mine because I'm the pastor and I'm supposed to make a fool of myself once in a while. But use these examples to think about your life, not mine. How about doing a chore that you love? You wouldn't necessarily equate toil with peace. But think about maybe there's a chore that you really like. And I bet you, even though you're toiling as you do it, you feel kind of at peace while you're at it. Doing a favorite chore can be a moment of perfect peace. For me, anything involving water typically involves peace. I love to go to the water. I often just go and sit and take it all in. I love Georgian Bay. I get within half an hour of Georgian Bay, and I can literally feel my blood pressure dropping. Moment of perfect peace. When was the last time you enjoyed one of those moments? How about this one? When was the last time you went all in on something? You know what it's like, right, to go all in? Your whole body, your whole soul, everything about you is engaged in doing this thing. My mother in law is all in on gardening. <laughs> we joke about this, but every week we show up and there's new plants. It's crazy. We're like, hey, hooray, more plants. <laughs> every time I think she's reached maximum capacity, she digs up another section of my lawn. <laughs> I say, thank you, Lord, for teaching me patience. She's all in on gardening. I'm all in on preaching. I don't know if you've noticed. By the time I finish on Sunday, I'm shattered. I'm often shattered till Tuesday. I often say to people, I'm trying to preach myself into an early grave. And look at me like, well, not really, but I'm literally trying to preach so hard that I leave feeling shattered. I coach football games the same way. Just ask any of my boys at Centennial. They know I love them because I give them everything I've got. How about how you engage with your wife and kids? Are you all in on your wife and kids, your husband and your kids? Something I'm all in on that's totally exhausting is maintaining and cultivating a spiritual life that will allow me not to be a fraud when I step up here in this pulpit every week. Honestly, that's harder than the sermon work. Because you can't fake spiritual vitality. You know it right away. So I'm all in on that. I would say, no exaggeration, 60% of my week is dedicated to making sure that I'm not an idiot. You're like, hmm, can't tell. <laughs> the time I uh, filmed overnight in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, I was definitely all in. From start to finish, by the time we lugged our gear out of downtown Jerusalem, the old city, by hand, we'd been working for 28 hours straight. And if you know anything about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, it's the traditional site of Jesus' burial, and most archaeologists think it's 98% accurate. And every night they lock the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, because the various sects of Christianity can't agree on who gets ultimate control. It's a Muslim caretaker who has the key. It's a little bit depressing. 
So it's a big ceremony. Everyone stands inside right where that rock is that represents the slab on which they laid Jesus to dress his body for burial. There's these ancient doors from the 1200s, and they come and close the doors, and they lock you in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, just us and the priests. And it's a quarter of a million dollars worth of film gear. And when we had to take a 35-foot crane and reverse it right in the front vestibule of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, arguably the most famous shrine in all of Christianity, we were all in on not scratching one piece of that place. By the time we finished that next morning, we were absolutely, I'm talking utterly, Shattered. It took us days to recover. Because you only get that chance once in a lifetime. At peace. How do you know you're at peace? You feel it. It's a stillness that comes over you. There's a oneness that you can literally almost feel, like a physical sensation when you're at peace. You know what I'm talking about? Stillness, oneness. You're one with the earth as you swim in Georgian Bay. Right? You feel like you're part of it. Stillness, when the goodness of God settles into your soul, you feel still. All the raging of the world around you kind of disappears for a moment. You're at peace. When you're all in, you'll know it. I've already mentioned this. When you finish, you're shattered, spent, a husk, a a shell. It's like an ongoing near-death experience. Anytime you do anything in a way that's all in, you've been made to be at peace. Your purpose is to live all in. I'll show you what I mean out of Mark 12. Reading from the English Standard Version. And he began to teach them in parables. Speaking of Jesus. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant they struck him on the head. In the Greek it's they pelted him with stones. <laughs> they pelted him with stones and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. No kidding. So they left him and went away. And then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. He said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. They marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, the other sect of the ruling class in Jerusalem, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, uh, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection. When they rise again, 
whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. One of the scribes came up and heard him disputing with them and seeing that he answered them well asked him which commandment is the most important of all jesus answered the most important is hear o israel the lord our god the lord is one shema yisrael adonai eloheinu adonai echad you shall love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength the second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself there is no other commandment greater than these The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, get this, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And then my Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on i mean how good is that chapter i keep thinking man i could just read the chapter and not preach like that's how good it is don't say amen too quick you're like yeah preacher it's good it's good man it's iconic we see here in mark chapter 12 12 kind of key teachables that will help you learn to live in peace and with purpose we'll discover here peace through selfless submission Purpose through being built into God's house. Peace through rejecting hypocrisy. Purpose through being a citizen of heaven. Peace through knowing the story of God. Purpose by becoming God's friend forever. Peace through the great summative commands and what Jesus did. Purpose through obeying the two great commandments and outdoing the rest of them. Peace because Jesus is the greatest king ever. Purpose by not being religious idiots. Peace because God is watching. Purpose by giving your all. Twelve points. Yes, like the twelve tribes and the twelve apostles from Mark chapter 12. All the charismatics say, oh, it's amazing. And I didn't even make this up. It's incredible. Twelve point sermon out of Mark chapter 12. Pay attention, y'all. This is going to be great. Point number one, peace through selfless submission. This is the point of verses one through nine. The parable of the vineyard and the idiot tenants. I will say idiot like six times and I mean it every time I say it. Parable of the vineyard and the idiot tenants. 
The key to this section is verse 7. Finally, the master of the vineyard sends his son. He's like, surely they will respect my son. They find out the son's coming, and what do they say in verse 7? Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. There's a nuance here in Judaism that's missed. They would assume that because the heir is coming, that the father has now passed away. They think erroneously, God is dead. They think the master is dead, which is why he sent the son. And so they think to themselves, great, if we kill him because the master's dead, the inheritance will be ours. Let me just say to you that God is dead is a very dangerous worldview. And though we may not profess it, I think if we look hard at our life, we may see that by times we live as if the master is dead. Come, let us kill the son and the inheritance will be ours. They want to take ownership for themselves. Friends, this is the human condition post-Eden. We want to take ownership for ourselves. And that insidious urge lurks inside every one of our hearts. The key is we're supposed to be tenants, but we want to act like owners. Do you ever do this? We're supposed to be tenant farmers, but we act like we own the land. The only problem with um, acting selfishly like this, the only problem with assuming that we can somehow claim the inheritance for ourselves, um, is verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Imagine how offensive this would have been the first time Jesus said it, teaching probably on the southern steps in Jerusalem, just south of the temple. So if, if these are the southern steps, I've sat there many times. In fact, I've taught there, which is pretty epic. When we go there this May, we'll probably do a little teaching there on the southern steps. It's crazy. You're sitting on the southern steps. The wall of the temple is right behind you. The Hulda gates, the three of them, are just literally to my left, your right. It's insane. This is where Jesus loved to teach. He's probably right there. There's thousands of people coming and going. And he says to them, all of them Jews, he says, you know what? You know what the farmer's going to do? The owner, the master? He's going to destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. He's explicitly warning Israel here, and particularly the religious elite in Israel, that because of their selfishness, because of their me-first fixation, the master will destroy them and give the vineyard to others. The clear implication here is he will take the kingdom from them and give it to the Gentiles. This is like nothing short of inflammatory. Nothing I have ever said, nothing any preacher will ever say is as inflammatory as what Jesus says right here. And the reason this has particular resonance that makes it worth preaching is he's not just warning the religious Jewish elite. Friends, down through the centuries, he's warning us, the Christian religious elite. Because um, religion has not passed away. It continues. The urge unabated to try and do something for God, to somehow earn His favor for ourselves, to somehow make ourselves right in His sight. And Jesus has a stern warning. And I just want to point out that all throughout Mark so far, that's His target, religious people. And the only reason I can preach Mark so fearlessly is because I am a religious person. And so these rebukes are for me first and foremost. And if any of it echoes into your heart and reforms you in even the smallest way, great, that's a bonus. He speaks harshly when he deals with religious people. He speaks gently when he deals with secular, outcast-type people. 
Again and again and again, this is his pattern. The teachable to us is this. You don't own nothing. So let your mother-in-law plant her plants in your grass. You don't own nothing. Die to self. Submit to Christ if you want to find peace. It's ironic that it's through dying that you find a way to truly live. It's why so many people don't really embrace Christianity all the way. Because it's just so darn hard. Because you're like, I don't want any more plants in my yard. And then the gospel says to you, it's not your yard, you religious hypocrite. And you go, oh God, you're right. I better start liking plants. <laughs> and look, the gospel reaches into just those kind of particularities. Different in each of our hearts. But the urge to cultivate our garden for ourselves lurks in each of us. You don't know nothing. Die to self. Submit to Christ if you want to find peace. And uh, find your, point number two, purpose through being built into God's house. Verse 10 and 11. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is the cornerstone. In uh, Hebrew and in Judaism, when you say cornerstone, the implication is foundation stone. Yes, it's a cornerstone. It lies at the joining of two walls. But the cornerstone in Jerusalem, I've actually seen the cornerstone that underlies the temple, sitting right on the bedrock of Mount Moriah. Okay, it sits this way. Okay, and the two walls are like this. Okay, it's a foundation stone. Jesus Christ is the foundation stone. And it's important to note that he was rejected, yes, by first century Judaism, but it's important for us to remember also that he is rejected by almost everybody you know in Guelph in 2019. It is not common to live like Jesus Christ is the foundation stone of your life. So my question to you this morning, because I love you, is, is he? Is Jesus the foundation stone of your life? In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, Ephesians 2.22 from this morning's invocation. Is Jesus the foundation of your life or is something else? Friends, your purpose is to go all in on being built into God's house. With Jesus as your foundation. That's what your life is meant to be about. And you're meant to find, point number three, peace through rejecting hypocrisy. This is the point of verses 13 through 17. They want to know if we should pay taxes to Caesar. They butter him up up front. Oh, teacher, you're so wise and good, and everything you say is true. These are the people that are trying to kill him. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or shouldn't we? Jewish people hated Roman tax, right? And we all said, amen, right? Don't we hate, do, I mean, does anybody love paying taxes? I don't know anybody who's excited about it. You know, next time somebody tells you, hey, man, relativism is the way, man. There's all kinds of truths. No, there's one truth. Nobody likes paying taxes, <laughs> right? I, I get so upset. I don't want to keep talking about it. Our taxes are bad enough. Imagine if we were being taxed by an autocratic oppressor. Imagine if that had been happening for generations. How deep would our resentment run? I don't know about you. I've become a freedom fighter. Like, if America took us over and then decided to double our taxes, our taxes already double what their taxes are, I would fight. I would fight. I'm like, heck No. You're not going to tax me. I go live in the woods, I'll fight. Right? Imagine, it's an oppressive, 
autocratic regime with his foot on your neck saying, pay up or else. So what are they trying to do here? Jesus is a very popular teacher, right? Thousands are following him by this point. Wherever he goes, there's great throngs. There's probably thousands of people surrounding him as this exchange is taking place. They're just dying for him to say, you know what? Let's quit. Let's quit. Let me form the kingdom right now. Forget the Romans. Let's go. The crowd would be like, oh, Todd Canelon going to grab a sword from Peter. Let's go. All right? Because I'm an idiot. They're trying to set him against the culture. Jesus doesn't play culture wars. Very instructive for me, maybe for you also. He does not play culture wars. He says, hey, bring me a denarius. Denarius is equal to one day's wage. Bring me a denarius. He said, whose likeness do you see on it? Uh, Caesar. Verse 17. Render then unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Why does he pull out a denarius? He asks them for a denarius, and significantly they give him one, meaning they have it. Meaning they're already participating in the system they're purporting to reject. Like, dummies. Right? We're already participating in that system. He points out their hypocrisy. And secondly, he emphasizes the kingdom as the locus of our true citizenship. What's he saying here? He's saying, give to Caesar whatever belongs to Caesar because it doesn't matter. But to God, the things that are God's, it's your citizenship in heaven that really matters. Money's a construct. Government is a construct. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so, yes, we render unto the government the things that belong to the government. We participate in a system, not necessarily of our choosing. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, depending on the year. Right? For some, it's the ideal system. For some, it's not. Right? You have people in a society who prefer all different kinds of rule. And then the anarchists like me who prefer that no one rule them. Let me go to the forest with my sword and let me eat cake. This is kind of difficult, isn't it? The kingdom's where you belong. Heaven is your home. A little bit later in the text, he'll emphasize his ultimate kingship. If you want peace, don't bemoan the system you're living in. Okay, just live through it non-hypocritically, with your eye on God's kingdom. Hmm. On purpose, point number four. So do that on purpose, like a citizen of heaven. And find, point number five, peace through knowing the story of God. This is the point of verses 18 through 27. One bride, seven brothers. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? I know. Let's, uh, let's steal the inheritance. I know. Let's argue about taxes and government. I know. Let's argue about the resurrection. Conflict. Because we don't know the story of God and we have lost our place in it. Verse 24, Jesus' rebuke here is powerful. May it resonate in our hearts also. Um, You are so wrong, basically, he says. You know why? Hmm. You know neither the Scriptures nor the dunamis of God. You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. (laughs) You're both intellectually bankrupt and spiritually bankrupt. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. What matters? 
The word with power. Dunamis power. From which we get the word dynamite. So ever think like Christianity should be stayed and relaxed? You're wrong. It should be dynamite. You know, neither the scriptures nor the power of God. The, the dunamis, the power of God. You know neither of them. What a rebuke to the religious elite. Remember, this is the religious elite he's talking to. Let that not be true of us, boy. You don't even know the Bible nor the Spirit. Ooh, you want peace? Get to know the Bible and get to know the Spirit. Both and. Both and. Know your word, know the Spirit. Know your word, know the Spirit, and find your, point six, purpose in being God's friend forever. Look, this whole Christianity thing is basically pretty simple when you get right down to it. Ready? Awesome. Be God's friend. You're welcome. You're like, you are working hard. Gee whiz. (laughs) Simple. Be God's friend. Be God's friend. Notice what God says here. This is my favorite point in the whole sermon. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ready? Mind's blown. Here we go. God identifies himself by his friends. I'm the God of Abraham. Ha! I'm the God of Einar and the God of Jen. Ooh! I'm the God of Lindsay and of Jared. Ha! And there's Andrew. He's the God of him too. Right? I'm the God of Zoe. Right? I'm the God of Rock. Good old Rock right here. He's your God too. I could go on and on and on. I'm the God of Matt. I'm the God of Katie. I'm the God of Tim. I'm the God of Rebecca. I'm the God of Jeff. I'm the God of Kathy. I'm the God of Cheryl. I'm the God of Scott. I mean, I could go on and on and on. I could name everybody, almost everybody in this room. I'm the God of Louie in the back. And Carlene, he's your God too. Live in such a way that God will begin identifying himself in connection to your name. I am the God of Sue Bitten. I am the God of Brian also. I am the God of Gina. I'm the God of Eric. Claire, he's your God too. I'm the God of Claire. I'm the God of Jules. I can keep going, but I'm out of time. That's how you need to live. Live in such a way that he will one day say, I am the God of, and then just fill in the blanks. Isn't that great? Tell me that's not great. Oh, it's so good. And being God's friend is actually easier than you might think. It happens, as you, point seven, find peace through the great summative commands and what Jesus did, as contained in verses 28 through 34. Uh, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? Which is the most important of all? Verse 28. This is a bottom line kind of guy asking Jesus this question. And what does Jesus say to him? He says to him, here they are. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. Again, echoing Matthew. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. This is it. The great distillation of the law of God. Love God, love neighbor. Friend, you don't got to fret about how to be right with God. Just love him. You don't got to worry about how to live. Just love the people around you. And 
you'll be at peace. Why? Because you'll be fulfilling your, point number eight, purpose through obeying the great two commandments and thereby outdoing all the others. Don't miss how powerful it is in verse 33 that this young man who's asked him this question quotes back to Jesus what he's just said, and he said, you're right, to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, here it is, is much more, not less, okay? Last time I checked, more doesn't mean less. Much more than all, last time I checked, all meant all, not some, just making sure we're clear on the language here, is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The whole burnt offering. Not a sin offering, not a like praise offering, not a show offering. The whole burnt offering, like the Yom Kippur type offering, the Day of Atonement type offering, the once and for all type offering. Do you know what it is in the Greek here? It's the Holocaust. That's the word for the whole burnt offering is Holocaust. That kind of burning, that kind of cataclysmic finality to love God and love neighbor is greater than all the whole burnt offerings in history. It's much more than. So look, the entire legalistic Jewish sacrificial system is outdone by the simple law of self-giving love that does no harm. Why? Because ultimately the law of love hangs on Jesus' supreme act of love at the cross. That's good theology. Verse 34. This is why Jesus says to him, after he parrots this back to him, hey, look, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He doesn't say you've attained the kingdom of God. There's one step yet, and that's the step that only Jesus can take when he goes to the cross to suffer and die in that man's place for his sins and for yours also. That's why he says you're not far. Because Jesus, not you, is going to close the gap and close the deal once and for all time. And because he's God, he's not going to stay dead, but he's going to rise again the third day, and he's going to defeat the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever. Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus is the final sacrifice, so you can live in, point number nine, peace, because Jesus is the greatest king ever. This is the point of verses 35 through 40. He's like, why do they call him the Messiah, the son of David? Even David called him Lord. So if he called him Lord, how can he be his son? He's going here to like the great heart of Jewish hope. He's saying, you're hoping that I'm going to be the son of David, that I'm going to re-inaugurate David's kingdom. He's like, I'm going to one-up David's kingdom because King David called me Lord. Jesus here is saying, I am the God that I've been talking about right here. I, says Jesus, am the greatest king ever. He's emphasizing his supremacy here because for sure, some of the people in the audience and maybe some of the people in this audience are still thinking, even having hearing, even having heard this exultant truth about Jesus, you're still thinking, yeah, but surely um, you still need Jesus plus something. Remember, it was like one of the first series I ever preached to you, Jesus plus Nothing equals everything. You can find it online. Yeah, but what about? Yeah, yeah, but what about? Yeah, yeah, but what about? You know who loved to say, yeah, yeah, but what about? Verse 38, in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation That's who likes to say, what about? Deep within us all lurks a fancy robe-wearing, social-climbing, status-loving elitist who really loves prosperity while spouting long-winded hypocritical prayers. 
So find your point number 10 purpose by not being a religious idiot. Because, verse 40, they will receive a harsher condemnation. I don't know about you, but I don't want to get whooped by the God of the universe. Period. If that means i got to kiss my religious ways goodbye, so be it! Worship team, you probably want to run to the stage right now, don't you? Yes, you do! Yes, you do! Mm. If i got to kiss my religion goodbye to be God's friend, that's what I'm going to do. I ain't going to let nobody stop me. The same should be true for you. Same kind of excitement should light you up from the inside. Should send you out into your week full of the passion of God himself. Determined to be his tool as he places his kingdom goodness right here in the city of Guelph and the surrounding region. You shouldn't need anything to motivate you beyond the gospel of God in Jesus. The great and powerful truth that he loved you so much that he sent his son to suffer and die in your place for your sin. And he rose again for your salvation. Friends, you're good because he's good. You're going to be fine because he's fine. Your destiny is secure because he has secured it. You know what? I'm going after point 11. Peace. Woo! Because God is watching. Verse 41 to 44. Don't you love that our Jesus sits down in front of the treasury and watches everybody give their gift? He knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you don't tithe so good. So start giving for goodness sake. Oh. It's true. Every preacher said amen. Amen. Don't you love that Jesus notices everything? He notices everything. He notices the rich giving much, but it doesn't cost them anything. God help you. If you're rich, start giving more. It should hurt you like it hurt the widow with her two mites. I'm good. I'm giving 10%. Towards 10% and beyond. He notices everything. He notices that the poor widow goes all in. He notices everything. So, cultivate Selfless submission. Remember, you're being built into God's house. Reject hypocrisy. Be a citizen of heaven. Know the story and the power of God. Become his friend forever. Build your life upon the love of God and the love of people and rest in what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. And in so doing, outdo all the law and the prophets because Jesus is the greatest king ever. So you don't have to be a religious idiot because God is watching you so your Point number 12, purpose, like the widow and her two pennies, is to go all in. And that's how you live in peace. 